So today is the full moon, one month into the Vasa. So it's a time to reflect on our practice so far in this three-month three retreat, completed one month. Time to review our efforts in the study and practice of Dhamma Vinaya. The right effort in the Buddhist path is the effort to abandon unwholesome, unskillful Dhammas that have arisen. The effort to prevent unskillful dhammas arising. The effort to bring up skillful dhammas. The effort to develop them. That covers all the aspects of the Buddhist path and the training, particularly in the monastery as a place of training education in both Dhamma and Vinaya. The right effort is directing one's physical and mental energy towards that training, that education in Dhamma and Vinaya. The monastery is a suitable environment for that, a peaceful place in the forest away from the bustle and the confusion of the city and urban areas. And everyone who lives in the monastery undertakes to train in the Vinaya, the monastic discipline, monastic form whether it's the eight precepts of an Anagarika, ten precepts of a novice, or the Patimoka Vinaya of a, a bhikkhu, a monk. We all undertake to train in these precepts as the foundation for our monastic practice. So that gives a certain uh, peace as well to the environment, not just the physical quietness and seclusion of the forest, but the quietness of behavior, conduct, and living well, harmoniously, with a sense of sacrifice for the, the training and dedication to the training, and mutual respect, and so on. So we study and we train in the Vinaya. This is part of our effort learning the Vinaya and then trying to incorporate it in our daily life through using particularly mindfulness and wisdom, developing more awareness of our actions to see if they're falling in line with the Vinaya training or not.
and those more unskillful ways of behavior when we recognize them, when we're training to recognize them and then abandon them, change. So changing some of our habits of speech, of action, and even mental habits, the ways we think over time. The effect of training in Vinaya is a very wholesome effect on the mind, helping us to abandon those tendencies which bring us suffering, confusion and stress. We're also training and educating ourselves in Dhamma, which goes hand in hand with Vinaya. So that means literally sometimes listening to Dhamma as we are now, reading Dhamma, listening to Dhamma, to educate ourselves in the teachings, the path that the Buddha gave. Sometimes it's reminding ourselves of truth of aspects of the path of practice that we've heard already but maybe have forgotten or lost on the way. Other times studying, listening to Dhamma, thinking of Dhamma, it's deepening what we already know, just deepening our understanding by contemplating the truths. and particularly the practice of um, meditation, whether you call it bhavana, mental cultivation, or gamatana, the basis for action. Meditation involves this deepening our understanding of the Dhamma, taking what we've listened to and read, thought about, and applying it sort of bringing up the qualities that meditation cultivates to allow the mind to see and understand truth more deeply. And this is the way, the vehicle that helps us to free us, our minds from all stress, suffering. There's one The way they talk about meditation, the meditation of a bhikkhu, a samana, a renunciant, one living in a monastery, keeping precepts, living on alms food. They talk about the araka gamatana, is the four meditation themes that a samana or a bhikkhu should be developing regularly. Araka means to preserve or protect. So these four themes, they protect the mind. What are they protecting? They're protecting us through our own application, training in these four different themes of meditation. They protect over our state of mind to help preserve it from falling into wrong views, wrong practices, wrong thinking and so on, into suffering. Help preserve the mind of a samana, a renunciant, 
the one who has left the world, because that's what we are. We're training in this way. We've gone forth as an Anagarika or a bhikkhu, taken refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, taken on precepts, gone through ordination procedures and so on. These four themes of meditation help preserve that, that state of mind from day to day, year to year as we practice. Help preserve the mind from falling back into the more worldly ways we may formerly come from, ways of thinking, behaving and so on. And these four themes in Buddha Anusati, the recollection of the Buddha, Metta Bhavana or the Brahma Viharas, the four sublime abidings as meditation themes. Maranusati, the recollection of death, the impermanence of life. And Gayagadasati, the recollection of the body and all the aspects of this physical body. These four meditation themes, they're all meditation objects, but they're also themes that we keep returning to to develop skillful attitudes in daily life, not only to bring up mindfulness, all of these are what we call anusatis, where you recollect, anusati means to recollect, to bring to mind, bringing to mind the Buddha, bringing the mind bringing to mind the thought of loving-kindness or compassion and so on. So all of these practices, these themes bring up mindfulness both in formal meditation but also in daily life, developing skillful attitudes which support the practice. These are areas for us to look at, to contemplate, to develop whether we're on, we're on our own, whether we're with other people, whatever our activity, we, these are all themes we can keep returning to and they're supporting bringing up the mind of a samana, a Buddhist renunciant. All of them can be quite extensive if you look into them as a meditation, they might be quite direct, quite simple, in just recitation of one word or one aspect of the body or one concept like death. Or... But it's also valuable to look at them as themes which can be expanded. Like Buddha Anusati, traditionally recollection of the Buddha, one takes the the chant that we learn, Niti Piso Bhagawa Arahang Samasambuddho, this is recollecting the qualities of the Buddha. Each of those qualities, the Buddha said, the, a Buddha, when it arises in the world, has these qualities. Whether it's the Buddha that we know of, our historical Buddha, Gautama, or any other previous Buddha or future Buddha, they have all these qualities. So in that sense, they're kind of qualities one can both aspire to and contemplate to 
direct the mind to the purpose of the practice and the goal of the practice and what's involved. There's one chant, that chant. You can, sometimes we do the English translation and reflect on the meaning of these words, the Pali words. The Buddha is is the blessed one, perfectly awakened one, the accomplished one, and so on. You go through word by word. That is both a recollection and recollecting the Buddha, the qualities of a Buddha. So it's a form of meditation. It also reminds you of you know, who the teacher is, what they what they practiced. Just thinking about these qualities can have a very powerful effect to quieten the mind down. Especially if one is in robes as a monk, it also reminds you, you know, who you are, what you stand for, as we wear these robes, representing the Buddha in the sense that he established the order of bhikkhus. And these robes are our, a symbol of the Buddha, his enlightenment, and these qualities of the Buddha. The purity, the wisdom, the compassion of the Buddha. You just take one of those nine qualities of the Buddha, the vicha, charana, sampano, is complete in knowledge and conduct. We chant that. You can look into it if you read suttas or commentaries, which are broken down into the, the three knowledges the Buddha gained on the night of his enlightenment, you know, the knowledge of past lives, the first knowledge he gained on the night of his enlightenment. He was complete with that knowledge, meaning he could direct the mind, the concentrated mind, to know his own or others, the past lives, what they had experienced, where they'd been, the nature of that past life, happiness and sadness and so on of each past life. Second one was uh, knowledge of the arising and passing away of beings according to karma. What karma they make, good and bad, determining where they arise after death, where they'll be reborn, what plane of existence. The last and the most important, asavakayayana, is the knowledge of the extinction of the asavas, the end of the abandonment of the mental defilements, the causes of suffering, craving, desire based on ignorance. In other words, the knowledge of enlightenment, the realization of enlightenment. And the Buddha was complete with these knowledges. And they actually expand that to eight knowledges. It can also include the avinya, the psychic powers that the Buddha and many other arahants have developed, the knowledge of other people's minds, state of mind, divine ear, divine eye, and so on. And just recollecting Vicha as a quality of the Buddha reminds one of the great skill and how far the Buddha had practiced in his own meditation. 
charana are usually divided into 15 aspects of charana, means conduct. It's not just you know, how he behaved, they define it as 15 charana. Sila Sampata is the first, complete in practice of morality, so completely harmless. The Buddha or an enlightened being is completely harmless. They don't harm others through body, speech, through their actions. They don't harm themselves. Complete in that way. They have the virtue of morality, harmlessness. Then there's the seven saddhammas, virtues of an enlightened Buddha. So that includes faith, satta, or confidence. It seems strange if an enlightened Buddha, why would he need faith? But the whole point is complete with faith, confidence. It's uh, practiced the path to the point where there's no doubt in the mind what the path is and the value of the path of practice, and why we practice, what the goal is, the purpose of it. Completely understands that, so complete has complete self-confidence in the practice and why we practice and so on. The other virtues, hiriyotapa, the sense of shame, the sense of fear of the consequences of wrongdoing. So these two they often talk about as being like the sense of conscience, as a conscience, knowing what is right and wrong, not wishing to transgress and do things that harm others, harm oneself, that cause obstructions to the practice, not to act in harmful ways, foolish ways, ignorant ways or so on. There's that natural awareness, having been trained, the mind is sensitive, has a, has a conscience, has an awareness of right and wrong, good and bad. In Bahu Sutta is learning. The Buddha is one of great learning. He spent time studying Dhamma and Vinaya, thinking about it, learning it, remembering it. So you might say just book knowledge, but it's not just book knowledge. It also means having internalized that knowledge, contemplated it, fully understood all the aspects of Dhamma. The learned person. And one who is complete in wiriya, in that dedication to the practice energetic in the practice, not lazy, not apathetic, but dedicated to the practice, energetic, putting forth effort, has the virtue of mindfulness, well-established mindfulness. And the Buddha obviously has practiced mindfulness to perfection, so it's continuous, moment to moment, presence of mind, not deluded, not falling into moods, uncertainty and doubt, dream states, fuzziness or whatever, and mindfulness is well established. And then one with panya, insight, insight into the nature of existence, insight into the three characteristics of phenomena, seeing physical, mental phenomena as anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, 
Those are the seven virtues of the Buddha. Then there's the three apanaka patipata. Buddha has these three practices that are never wrong. Ajahn Chah talked about so much. Patipata means practice that one upholds continuously you know, through one's day, through one's life as a bhikkhu. First of them is Indriya Sangwara, the practice of sense restraint. Being restrained, composed in the way one uses one's sense faculties. That's eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, and then the mind itself. So again, using the quality of mindfulness to guard over the senses. And it's particularly to have mindfulness when there is sense contact, so when the eyes see a form, to have mindfulness enough to guard from the mind falling into either desire for that form or aversion for that form, liking, disliking, attraction, aversion, so having enough mindfulness to keep the mind in equanimity where it's cool, balanced, peaceful rather than becoming caught up into a mood of desire and attraction or aversion based on seeing something or hearing sounds, tasting food, smelling, touching or internal ideas, concepts, images and so on that arise internally in the mind. The mind is the sixth sense door. The sense restraint is establishing mindfulness as we have sense contact to avoid the mind falling into desire and attachment. And the Buddha has that, maintains that. The other one is Mbojane Matanyutai, moderation in eating and the consumption of any of the requisites. And the Buddha, Buddha was modest. He didn't indulge, even though people often offered him many things, nice food, uh, nice robes, built him dwellings and monasteries, offered him medicine for the, when he was sick, and no doubt offered him all kinds of pleasurable things he could have used, but he was modest and moderate in the way he used requisites. He contemplated how much do I need to eat, how much do I need, and the purpose of how, why we use these requisites, you know, not just to indulge for the sake of it, but actually using these requisites to support the practice of deepening understanding of Dhamma. He was complete in that. He was complete in the last of these three Apanakapatibhattas, Chakaryanu Yoga, Again, dedication to wakefulness, particularly dedication to the arousing of mindfulness and insight through the practice. So he didn't you know, become a Buddha and then just take it easy and lie around, sleep around, have a good time. He maintained that right to the last moment, last breath of his life. It means he was always dedicated to the development of mindfulness, insight, wakefulness, energy, and so on. That became his nature. 
normal for a Buddha or any enlightened being to be like that. The last of the 15 charana, the conduct of a Buddha, is the four jhanas, developing, attaining the four jhanas, first, second, third, fourth. And the factors of jhana, vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekakata. He was skilled, he knew these factors, what they were, vitaka, applying the mind to a meditation object which are sustaining it on the object. Piti, giving rise to joy, rapture, sukha, contentment, ekakata, one-pointedness of mind. He was skilled in developing those qualities, one-pointing to his mind as a basis for deepening insight again. And this is the charana, the conduct of a Buddha, is complete in these 15 ways. So in tandem with vichā, there's already many, many qualities that a Buddha possesses. And then there's all the other, of the, another, other, of the nine qualities of the Buddha, you know, knower of the world, the loka widu, the awakened one, the blessed one, the one who went well, was accomplished, you know, the unsurpassed teacher of gods and humans, and so on. These are reflections one can just think about to brighten the mind, bring up faith, more understanding of what a Buddha is, what they do, what the path that they teach is. But also one can use them as a formal meditation. You just recollect one word, say Buddha, or somebody today said they use the word loka we do. Any of those words is meaningful enough if one has has a sense of this is a meaningful word for me you can just recite it in Thailand it would be butto 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 as a mantra in in time with the breathing breathe in but breathe out to or in time with the walking if you're doing walking meditation one foot butto another foot butto or just reciting it as you're doing different activities. And this is recollecting the Buddha. There's both a theme one can bring up to think about, contemplate, and a recitation that one can just use as a mantra to quiet and still the mind. It's a araka kamatana. It's one that preserves the peace of the mind and the wholesome state of the mind in the sense of being a Buddhist monastic in training. The next one is metta, or the Brahma-viharas, these four sublime abidings. Loving kindness, friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. These are four themes that one is regularly turning to as a Buddhist monk, as one is practicing non-violence, harmlessness, developing compassion for oneself and others. So again, they're both a meditation object one can develop to the state of one-pointedness, to still the mind, calm the mind. They're also themes to reflect on. Do I have metta in my mind or not? If, you're not, if you don't have it, it means you've got 
some form of aversion or jealousy or anger in your mind or hatred. So they're reflections one constantly returns to in the course of one's monastic training. Not just internal, also we express our compassion, our kindness outwardly. So we help each other in the monastery. We look after the monastery, support each other in different duties, cleaning, maintaining the place, not being selfish in the way we behave. We express it in our speech. And the Buddha said correct speech is speech that is fixed with metta. It's not far from metta. So if we give in to anger or arrogance or other kind of more unskillful qualities, well, it's taking your mind away from metta, going towards those qualities. When we speak to each other, speak to visitors to the monastery and so on, this is a theme to contemplate. Is my speech with metta or not? The mood, the intention behind my speech, is it with metta and compassion or not? Sympathetic joy is also a quality we have to develop when living in the community because living together it's very easy over time to get to know each other and we know each other's strengths and good points and then our weaknesses and the bits we don't like about each other. And if one is intent on developing meditation, well, to dwell on each other's faults just makes the mind miserable and becomes an obstacle to meditation. can even drive one out of the monastery if one can't get, get beyond it. So one has no choice but to develop qualities of kindness, compassion and sympathetic joy. And when we think of each other, you, know, you tend to want to think of the inspiring parts about each other. You know, everybody keeps precepts, helps out in the monastery, is doing their bit, doing their practice. One can remember that if one has a character that dwells on faults and negative aspects of other people. One develops sympathetic joy, you know, the appreciation of each other, appreciation of the successes. If somebody seems to be successful in their meditation, well, that should be good for everyone. We all benefit when somebody is more peaceful, more content in themselves, as opposed to, say, being jealous of them or unhappy somebody else is successful and we're not. And this is the way mature spiritual practitioners relate to each other. You know, like in the time of the Buddha, Venerable Sariputta and Moggallana, always held up as true friends. They had their own skills, they're both enlightened, but Sariputta is expert in explaining Dhamma, analyzing the Dhamma. Moggallana is expert in practice of samadhi, the refined levels of jhana and the psychic abilities that come with it. So both had their own special skills, but they didn't compete or complain about each other. They practiced mudita for each other. So they both were aware of the other, each one was aware of the other's strong points and praised them for it publicly and were genuinely happy 
when one appreciates Dhamma, then anyone who displays Dhamma in their practice, in their behavior, it becomes a source of joy. As that means there's more Dhamma in the world, as opposed to say, jealousy or competitiveness, where we focus more on the things we don't like. So Sariputta is a famous story when Sariputta is meditating in the forest and that unpleasant yaka, ogre, comes along as he's meditating and sees him, tells his friend, I think this monk is very arrogant there, meditating, don't like the look of him. His friend warns him, don't, don't disturb him. He's Sariputta, he's an enlightened monk very peaceful, good person, you shouldn't bother him. But this yaka is a little bit mischievous, can't resist, says, ah, I don't believe that. He walked up to him with his huge club and smashed him on the head. Sariputta is so mindful and deep in his meditation, he just contemplates rising, passing away of phenomena as he's meditating, so he didn't even move. The yaka goes away, friend says, mm, you've done it now, you're going to be in trouble. Meanwhile, Moggallana saw what happened, came along and asked Sariputta, how do you feel? Sariputta says, feel fine, just doing my meditation, feel very relaxed, peaceful. I do have a little bit of a sore head though. He didn't know why. Moggallana says, do you know your sore head is from, Yaka came along and thumped you with his club. Sariputta says, oh, amazing. Your psychic powers are so good you can see that. That's really amazing. Praised him. And Moggallana praises Sariputta for being practicing so much equanimity when he was smashed on the head by a naughty yaka. So they mutually praised each other. Meanwhile, the yaka went away. I think his head split into a hundred pieces or something. Didn't have a very good fate. This is how true friends in the Dhamma treat each other. They talk up their good points. They praise each other, they support each other. And don't put each other down or find fault with each other. They've gone beyond that. That's mudita, isn't it? You practice mudita, seeing the good in others. The bad one might know, one just sets it aside, doesn't make a big thing out of it. Upeka is probably the hardest to develop, but we are developing it in meditation. Again, like with sense restraint, and learning to develop that quality of equanimity towards all the experiences we have, pleasant, unpleasant, towards other people, pleasant, unpleasant, towards their successes, their failures, and our own successes and failures, to learn to be able to accept, treat them in a balanced way, not to get too excited and elated, not to get depressed, but just to see things, all things arise according to their causes and conditions. To understand karma, we all make karma and receive the fruits of our karma, good and bad. And true equanimity is where you understand this, when the mind isn't stirred up or thrown about by pleasant or unpleasant experiences, but just knows things as they are. All these four Brahmaviharas, these are meditations that preserve your peace of mind and the quality of being a samana. To be developed ex 
externally and internally in your own meditation and in the way you relate to other people and the world around you. Maranānusati, the recollection of death. And the Buddha said this is absolutely essential for a Buddhist monastic. So at first it seems a bit strange because in the world nobody really talks about this. And that's because in the Buddhist monastery we're different from the world. We're giving up many of the things of the world and our goal is enlightenment, peace of mind, which is an internal thing. And the goal of most people in the world is to experience more pleasure, make more money, have more experiences of pleasure and so on. In the monastery we're giving that up, so we set aside our desire to accumulate wealth, to gain money and possessions and different kinds of experiences in that way. And we're looking more into understanding truth so that we can bring our mind to peace. And recollection of death supports that, as we're recollecting the fact that we will die. As human beings we are bound to die. We don't know when, but we will die for sure. And when you die, you can't take all the pleasures of the world and the wealth and the things you might accumulate in this world, you can't take them with you. When you make the commitment to come into the monastic form, the Buddhist form, monk, form of a monk, you're kind of accepting that. You're going in a different direction. You're not doing it to make money or make a name for yourself accumulate a lot of pleasant experiences on a worldly level your aim is simply to realize truth and bring your mind to peace and quiet and inner happiness so the recollection of death actually promotes that it reminds you of the impermanence of things the impermanence of this body and the world and we can never really recollect it enough. This is a very good technique for cutting off a lot of mental proliferation, worry, concerns about different things. It's a very good meditation technique for that. Venerable Ananda, he was already a Sodapan, already reached the first stage of enlightenment. And the Buddha asked him, Ananda, do you contemplate death? Yes, of course, Venerable Sir, I do, every day. How often? Seven times a day, on average. Not enough, Ananda, the Buddha said. And the Buddha contemplates death every in-breath, every out-breath. Constantly contemplating the impermanence of physical, mental phenomena, this body, this mind, the world. Everything is arising, passing away. So it's as if we're dying every moment. If you're ever caught into a mood or a doubt, and the recollection of death can often cut through all kinds of moods, doubts, uncertainty in the mind. Bring the mind back to the present moment. And if one does that successfully, then it's quite peaceful doesn't make one feel depressed or unhappy, it's just a useful technique to make the mind see truth and accept truth the way it is. We just don't know how long we'll be here. So it also brings up a sense of urgency in the practice to use time wisely, 
not to let the hours and the days slip by without studying and practicing Dhamma. The last of those meditations that preserve the quality of being a samana Gaya Sati, the contemplation of the body, is the first foundation of mindfulness and again extends into many aspects. In a reflection on the posture, to be mindful of one's posture, to know now I'm sitting, now I'm walking, moving, coming, going, eating, bathing and so on. To be mindful of one's posture, to be mindful of the breath. Breathing meditation is part of Gaya Sati as well. Using the breath as a meditation object, developing the skill of calming the mind by focusing on the breath, knowing the in-breath, out-breath, the beginning of the in-breath, the middle of it, the end of it, beginning of the out-breath, the middle of it, the end of it, and so on. Contemplating the parts of the body that make up this body, where do they come from? The four elements, earth, air, fire, water. This body, and we eat food, digest food, it goes out as excrement, the other, the other end. That, f- that food and the liquid we drink, this is how the body is sustained. But in the end it degenerates with aging and sometimes with sickness. It's very impermanent, unstable. It's also not very attractive when you look closely at the body. You take away the clothes and the makeup and the different images we have of this human body in our mind, but you look closely at what it really is, you notice it's not so pleasant. If you don't clean it, it smells. It's full of uh, undigested food inside. It's pretty unpleasant if you ever see it. You have a vomit, it's not very pleasant. Your excrement's not very pleasant. The blood and the organs and so on going around this body. These are all parts of the body to be investigated just to bring the mind to see the truth, true nature of this body as it is. Even more so when it dies. One can imagine when you, when you die, your body decomposing. It doesn't look attractive and it doesn't last takes about between two and three months for a body to decompose if you just leave it on on the ground. In the old days when we were in the, one monastery I used to live in, they used to bring in the bodies of criminals. Nobody wanted them, their relatives didn't want them, disowned them. They'd bring them in and leave them in the forest to decompose, way out in the forest because they're so smelly. And you could watch you measure how long it takes for the body to change as it swells up, becomes bloated, and then sometimes gets uh, eaten by animals, and then gradually fades away. All that's left is bones and a little bit of dried flesh, and still the smell. That's a reflection on what happens to every human body, whether you leave it out in the open or you bury it. Either way, it de- decomposes. If you burn it, well, it's very quick. In Tibetan Buddhism, out of compassion, they take 
the human body, the body of the dead, and they give it what they call a sky burial. They take it to certain burial sites on their holy mountains. There's a man called the Sky Master, who's like the funeral director. Everyone's scared of him because he's always dealing with dead bodies. And he takes the body and he chops it up. Chops it up and then he mixes the bones with barley and butter to make it tasty and he puts the bones all bashed up onto a slab of rock and all the vultures come and they feed the vultures considered holy birds once they've eaten the bones and they eat the rest of the, the body the flesh and so on till it's all gone so they actually practice compassion for the birds and that's a human being. The reason they do that is based on the understanding that once you die, the body is, just becomes something to be given up, given away, fed to the birds or whatever. It's not something to hold on to. But when you contemplate the body as a meditation, you're seeing that truth that ultimately this body is something to be given up. It's without an owner. You can't own it and keep it forever. That brings the mind to see truth. Makes the mind peaceful, if you can see that. Counters our lustful attachment to the world, attachment to the opposite sex, attachment to all the sort of pleasant experiences we tend to always focus on that we can have with this body, the pleasures of a body, which we get so intoxicated with helps to counter that and just balance the mind, bring it back to seeing the reality of things, the impermanent nature of this body. So all these four Araka Gamatanas, they're meditation themes, objects that preserve our state of mind, keep it focused on Dhamma Vinaya, on the qualities of a monk, focused on the Buddha and the path of the practice, the Dhamma the Vinaya, and bring the mind to develop more mindfulness and abandon the kalesas, abandon all our cravings and attachments little by little. So it's up to us to make use of this opportunity. You know, the lay people give us all this support, bring us food every day, provide the accommodation free, have provided this monastery for us to practice so this is our chance to use these themes, these techniques that the Buddha gave us to deepen our understanding, to educate ourselves so we know better what is what, the truth about things, truth of the way things are, free our mind from suffering. So I'll leave you with these uh, contemplations tonight. <laughs> 